Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. John chapter 6 has 70, let's see here, 71 verses. So even if we got through verse 45, we would be just over halfway through the chapter. (laughs) And I doubt we're going to be able to do that here tonight. We're probably going to just get kind of halfway through this. And so we'll see how that works out. And I'm going to be, for those of you that don't know, I think Mark has mentioned it, that um, we're broadcasting live on Facebook. And so if somebody comments or joins us we see you and we know that you're there and i'm going to try and see if maybe for instance if people have questions i know in the past there was a time where people could like write in or type in a question or a comment i don't know if we're going to be able to do that because it doesn't seem to be working very well for me right now but uh anyway i'll try back again a little bit later okay so john chapter six to intro to this, to this study, to kind of bring us up to speed on what's been going on. We've seen Jesus' miracles as well as his discussions with Nicodemus, John chapter 3, and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And if we get there in this study in John chapter 6, we're going to compare some things that Jesus says with some Jewish people with what he told the Samaritan woman and the responses to what he had said because they're both very parallel. We've seen that he is the word of God incarnate, God in human flesh, the creator walking among men. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, and Moses wrote of him. He now heads from Jerusalem to Galilee. He heads from Jerusalem to Galilee. Now, one of the main things that we see in the book of John that is uh, an amazing focus is Jesus' authority. Not so much, look at this miracle, look at this thing, look at that thing, look at this thing that Jesus taught and isolating all these different little things and making them separate incidences. They all, and the overarching focus of the book of John is is, is focusing and showing us that Jesus has the authority to do those miracles, to teach those things, to say those things because he is God. And so all of those things will bring it together into into a a laser sharp focus that Jesus has authority. He has authority that some like the Samaritan woman in the city of Samaria, the city of Sychar, 
in John chapter 4, they accepted that authority, that he was the Messiah, and they submitted to that authority. We find others like the Judean rulership, okay, of the uh, Ju Jewish religious crowd there in, 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 in Judah, that they reject many times Jesus' authority. And so we're going to see some comparisons between those that accept and those that don't. But let's look at this in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14 is what's known as the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. And this is an amazing passage. This is also known as the first miracle regarding the feeding. Okay, The first miracle of feeding the 5,000. There's two different instances where Jesus feeds a multitude in the scripture. The first one, the feeding of the 5,000 that we see here, is also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you are writing stuff down, I'll give you those references. In Matthew, the parallel passage to this is Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. The parallel passage in Mark is Mark chapter 6, verse 31 through 44. And then in Luke, we have Luke chapter 9, verses 12 to 17. And all, all, all of those accounts are of the same event, the feeding of the 5,000. Now, there is also a separate account, a second miracle, which is known as the feeding of the 4,000. Okay, and that event, the feeding of the 4,000, is only in Matthew and Mark. Okay, so we have two different events. The first miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, in all four Gospels. Then we have the second miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, that's only listed in Matthew and in Mark. Matthew 15, 32 through 39, and then also in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Okay? So that's before we even get into verse 1. But let's get into verse 1, okay, and see what it says for us. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Now, Back in John chapter 5 and previous, what was the main event in John chapter 5? There was a man. Yes. Okay. He healed an impotent man on the Sabbath, a man that had been lame, unable to walk. He had been impotent for 38 years. And there's all kinds of other um, building up to this miracles that Jesus did. Back in, I believe it's the end of John chapter 2, uh, there's uh, some miracles that Jesus does. In verse 23 of John chapter 2, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. And then in John chapter 3, Nicodemus opens up with, no man can do these things that you do that I've seen, except God is with him. Okay, and so there's been many people that have seen these miracles, seen different things that Jesus had done in healing people, okay, and different things like at the wedding feast of Cana, okay, turning the water into wine. And so, a great multitude, verse 2 of chapter 6, followed him because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. Okay, and we read, I think it's at the end of the book of John, that if... All of the things that Jesus did were written down. I suppose that not even the world could contain the books that should be written. There's lots of things that aren't even recorded in this scripture 
that Jesus did. I mean, if it was recorded every single instance of healing somebody, every single miracle, we would have volumes and volumes and volumes. And God has given us specifically what we, what we need to know, okay? What he wants us to know in, in this inspired word. So, but there's many that followed him because they saw his miracles. Now, we're going to see throughout this chapter as we go through this crowd that these people are Jewish, okay? And I'm going to prove to you that many of them are Jewish, if not all of them, the majority anyway, the vast majority are Jewish people. Now, you have two different kind of groups of Jewish people. You have what's often referred to as the Jews, okay? And that's not an anti-Semitic term, okay? It's a, it's a term that the rest of the world will understand who Jesus is talking about. In Hebrew, Hayahudim. In Greek, it's something like Yudioi, the Jews, which it translates exactly in English into the Jewish people. So there's many that would claim uh, and, and, and sadly, throughout the ages, many have claimed that the New Testament is anti-Semitic. Some that were on the side of anti-Semitism, saying, this is great, Jesus is really letting the Jews, quote-unquote, have it. When they don't realize that every single disciple, every single writer of the New Testament was Jewish. The crowds that Jesus spoke to, the ones that believed and the ones that didn't, were majority Jewish people. It's a Jewish context in its entirety. It is not anti-Semitic. But the book of John is prepared, okay, supernaturally, the book of John is prepared for a worldwide audience. So people, you know, in Australia, before there was, you know, Jewish people dispersed to every corner of the globe, they might not know, who is he talking about? Aren't we all Gentiles? No, it's the Jews. It's specifically the Jewish people that are being spoken of. And so, um, but there's the... The Jewish, um, the Judean Jews, which are the ones that came to John, okay, the ones from Jerusalem, the Jewish rulers, the ones that were the religious crowd that many times were the ones that Jesus rebuked for holding their traditions on a higher level than the word of God, okay? They were so involved in quote-unquote rabbinic Judaism, meaning they followed the rabbis so closely and the word of God itself became kind of, you know, put on the back burner. Those are the ones that Jesus often rebuked. But there's also a great multitude like this multitude here that are just the people of the land. Okay, we might call them secular Israelis. <laughs> okay, they're still Jewish ethnically, but they're not the ultra-Orthodox. And so there's two different kind of groups of Jewish people that you see in the book of John. You see the Jewish religious crowd that so often Jesus rebuked for their hypocrisy and unbelief. And then you also see the people of the land, just the everyday Jewish Israeli. Yes? There's a number of them. Uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the big two. It's kind of like Democrats and Republicans. There's many other political uh, groups, you know, or parties. Um, the Essenes was one. Um, there was also a, a group known as the Sicarii. And so I was reading about Judas, Judas Iscariot. Okay, and it's kind of up in the air what Iscariot means, but a lot of people believe Iscariot is relating to the Sicarii group, Judas the Sicarii. Okay, 
and the Sakari were ultra right wing, super, um, I guess, nationalistic, militant Jewish people. That if anybody showed any sympathy toward Rome, okay, talking about the time of Jesus, if any Jewish person showed sympathy towards Rome, yeah, I mean, uh, according to tradition, the Sicarii, they all carried a dagger, you know? And so with Judas, I mean, you see that he is, um, he's following Jesus, he's a follower of Jesus, and he's not necessarily from the very beginning uh, having ill intent necessarily or showing ill intent, I'll put it that way. He's not outwardly showing Ill, Ill intent towards Jesus, but when things get, where the rubber meets the road, things get tough, especially when Mary anoints Jesus with the spike nerd and Judas kind of shows his true colors. This should have been given to the poor, you know, and, and, and Jesus says, she, this has been, she's anointed me for my burial. And Judas is thinking, what in the world? This is going to be our Messiah the one that delivers us from Rome, and he's talking about his burial? And so you can see that event set in motion. I'm going to betray, betray this guy because he's not, he's not a true nationalistic, beat up Rome and, 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 and deliver us nationally uh, kind of a leader. And so the Sicarii was another, another sect uh, within Judaism in the first century. There's, I, I'm not sure how many, but those are the, the, the big two, Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay, the, the Pharisees was the, the group of, um, the, the, the party of the people. And the Sadducees, okay, the Zadokim, which came from the tribe of Zadok, okay, they were the ru ruling crowd. Um, and that came about in the intertestamental period, that split. And so um, after the destruction of Jerusalem, there was no more temple, there was no more, you know, of a priesthood, which at the time was the Sadducees. They were not only the ruling crowd or party or sect, but they were also the sect of temple worship. And so at the destruction of the, the temple, Pharisaical Judaism came to the forefront and Sadducee Judaism all but disappeared. And so nowadays, pretty much every single Jewish person that is religious is religiously descendant in their ideals from Pharisaical Judaism. Now, Pharisee, beca because of what's happened, boy, we are not going to get anywhere near done with this, but that's okay. Uh, I'm teaching two more times this month, just so you know. Um, but anyway, so um, what was I saying? The Pharisees, oh, yes, okay. So Pharisee in Hebrew is the paroshim. Paroshim means the pure ones. Okay, and so they started out as kind of like analogous in some ways uh, to what was trying to be done with the Protestant Reformation. They were unhappy with the Church of Rome, okay, and had objections. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door there. And, um, but anyway, the, the, the Pharisees, they saw corruption within the Sadducees, and they didn't want to have any part of it. They wanted to be... Um, I guess, closer to what the Bible or the scripture or the Tanakh teaches. But they became so steeped in it that they ended up elevating the traditions of the rabbis, the teachings of the rabbis, the commentaries on their scripture um, above the scripture itself. And so there were some good Pharisees. Okay, So being a Pharisee in and of itself is not a bad thing, but 
many of them, because of the teachings of Pharisaical Judaism, found themselves in opposition to the teachings of Jesus and thereby the word of God as well. Short question, long answer. Okay. So a great multitude followed Jesus, verse 2, because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Now, are Jesus and his disciples and the majority of this multitude all Jewish? Yes. Okay, Jesus, his disciples, the majority of this whole crowd are all Jewish. Why does it have to tell us that a feast of the Jews is drawing nigh? Because this audience of the book of John is planned on, you know, being a worldwide audience. And guess what? It is. <laughs> so, all right. So the Jews, again, is not an anti-Semitic term. John is a very Jewish book, and yet it is prepared for a worldwide audience. Keep in mind that the entire crowd here, at least the majority, is Jewish. Okay. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith to Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, this, this is an interesting scenario. It's kind of humorous in some ways, okay? He sees this huge crowd, huge crowd of people, which we find out later is 5,000 men, okay? Not including women and children. In ancient times... In the time of Christ, normally when there was a counting made of the people, it was normal everyday practice to just count the men. And that's what we have here. So there's more than just 5,000, but it's a big crowd. Now, Jesus sees all these people and he, he says unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Where, you know, where can we go to get some bread to feed these people? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, prove here is test. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He's God. He knew what was, he was going to do, but yet he still says to Philip, where can we buy some bread for these people? <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Um, anyway, so uh, this same word is used in the book of Luke about proving oxen. And proving, again, has the idea of testing. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Prove there isn't like, okay, I'm going to just fish out into oblivion and try and find the perfect will of God. What it's saying here is test it. I've already showed you what the perfect will of God is. I want you to try it out. And that is linked, I believe, very strongly to Romans chapter 11. The last couple of verses of Romans chapter 11. Verse, I think, 13 through 32. Talk about how we've obtained mercy from the Jewish people. And we need to show them mercy in return by giving them the gospel. I present you therefore, or I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What mercies? The mercies that are shown to us Gentiles or Samaritans or whatever you may be um, by the blindness of the Jewish people so that then the gospel could go to the whole world and we'd have a chance to get saved. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service that you might prove what is the good and acceptable will of God. God wants us to, I think, give our all 
to reaching his people. And that's what he was beseeching the Gentile church at Rome to do. Exactly that. Anyway, that's neither here nor there, but prove. Prove means to test. This he said to prove him. Philip answered him, and this is, this is great. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. Now, check this out. How much is 200 penny worth? The Roman denarius, which is known as a penny, okay? And it's, it's more than a penny, but you know. The Roman denarius was a day's wages. North Carolina minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. Okay, if you live here in North Carolina, $7.25 an hour. An eight-hour day would earn 58 bucks. 200 days, a.k.a. 200 penny worth, by today's standards, would be $11,600. So what Philip, in effect, is telling Jesus, even if we had 1,200 bucks, it wouldn't be enough for everyone to just get a little. It's kind of funny when you see, <laughs> you know, Jesus kind of comically asking Philip, where can we buy some bread for these people to eat? And Philip's getting all flustered saying, even if we had 1200 12,000, even if we had $12,000 to spend on just bread, it wouldn't be enough for this whole entire crowd to get just a little. And so, um, we see the, the context here. And you know, sometimes in our lives, Jesus puts us in a situation, the Lord puts us in a situation, allows us to be in a situation that's a little bit out of our comfort zone. Jesus himself verbally asking Philip, where can we buy bread? <laughs> you know? I mean, have you ever been in a situation where you don't know what to do and how in the world, Lord, did you allow me to get to this spot because I don't have the answer? And sometimes he does that to prove us, to test us. As in Luke, it mentions, like I said, proving oxen. Okay, getting us conditioned, so to speak, or helping us to grow in the Lord. And that's exactly what this situation that he put uh, Philip in. He didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to ask Philip where they could buy bread. He could have just done what he does here. But sometimes he puts us to the test, so to speak. Which is kind of the same, the same lingo used uh, in the book of Malachi where God says, prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, if I won't open up the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, if you give to his work, okay? Um, test me. See if I'm not, you know, promising you the truth here. So one of his disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, there is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? Okay, so Andrew, here he brings this, this boy to Jesus. He's got some lunch. I've heard a message before called The Lord, the Lad, and the Lunch. That's kind of a catchy title there. But this lad, this boy, okay, he has five barley loaves and two small fishes. I don't know, maybe they were sardines or something. <laughs> two small fishes, okay? And then Andrew says... Even though he says, there's a lad here with, with, you know, five loaves and two fishes. But then he kind of blows that faithful statement away by saying, but what is that among so many? And so that's something that you and I oftentimes are guilty of, of saying. Statements that lack faith. Listen to these. Maybe think to yourself, have I ever said this or thought this? Who am I to do this? How can I do this? 
what can I accomplish with so little? I can't do it. This is just too crazy to even try. I don't know enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not righteousness, righteous enough. And a lot of times with believers, that's just an excuse. There are certain things in the Bible that you can be disqualified from by what you do with your life, especially serving in different capacities in leadership, in ministry. But aside from those things, what does the Lord want us to do? And I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. Is that the, is that the Lord's Supper passage? 1 Corinthians 11, I think. Where we're supposed to examine ourselves. Okay? And then, he sa- and then it says uh, something along the lines of, um, you know, as a man has examined himself, so let him eat. You know, the purpose is not for us to say, oh, I just, I mean, it's, 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 it's a safeguard against having sin in our life. Well, we partake of the Lord's Supper. There was many that were abusing the Lord's Supper. But the purpose is not to say, oh, I was, you know, doing some bad stuff this week, and so I'm just going to forget about it. And you basically check out of the Lord working in your life at that point. That is not the point. The Lord would rather have you not eat, okay, if you have something going on in your life that's not right, unconfessed sin, okay, that you're harboring. But what does the Lord ultimately desire? Reconciliation. He wants you to examine yourself so you'll get it right. So you'll be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so as we have here, many times we have excuses in our life. I can't do it. And so Satan wants so badly for us to fail and not get back up. Or to fail and to twist it in our hearts and minds that we just, we cannot get over that. We cannot come back from that. We cannot, and again, there's certain things, and there's consequences. God brings consequences for sin. But our faith shouldn't be so stifled and, sh- and so driven into the ground and hammered down that we say it's not even worth confessing and repenting and forsaking. It is worth it. It's worth it to get right with the Lord. And so God wants us in whatever capacity we are able to, according to his standards, whatever capacity we're able to serve, okay? Maybe there's certain things that you can't really do because something happened and the Lord maybe took away some kind of ministry or some kind of opportunity in your life. But that doesn't mean that you can't serve where you are at in some way, do some kind of ministry, some kind of thing. You can still hand out a tract. You can still tell somebody about Jesus. And so often, I'm just picking out one of these things here. I'm not, I'm not righteous enough. If we're not righteous enough, okay, to be able to do something for the Lord, we are never, ever, ever going to do anything for the Lord. It's his righteousness that counts anyway, doesn't it? Okay? And so don't let any of these things. Um, I heard one statement, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. God has called you to do something. Faithful is he that calleth you that also will do it. Right? And so God wants so badly for us to have communion with him, fellowship with him, to be able to be used by him, experience the filling of his spirit in our lives and yielding to his spirit's control and just doing what he has put us here on this earth to do. And if we're just sitting back, I can't do that. I'm not talented enough. I, you know, I don't, how can I do so much with so little? That's exactly what Andrew says here. There's a lad. He's got five barley loaves, two fishes, but that's just not enough. What is, what is that much, you know, compared to so many people? That's not going to do anything. 
And we find that both of these men, Philip here and Andrew, are proven dead wrong by the next uh, actions of, of, of Jesus. Okay, Satan wants us to think that we've sinned too much, too often, or too willingly to be forgiven or even to seek restoration through repentance. That is his goal for a believer to get so steeped into sin that we drag down the testimony of Jesus and we feel like there's no point in even coming back. That's not what the Lord wants us to do. <clears throat> he wants you to think that it's too late. I can never serve God. Or if you're not saved, if you don't know the Lord as your Savior, it's too late. You don't know what I've done. Okay, I've, I've known people or known of people that um, when you tell them about Jesus and salvation just by grace through faith, they say something along the lines of, I wish that I could believe that. I wish that it was that easy. I wish that I could just, you know, have that forgiveness, but I've, you don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. Jesus does, and he died for that person. If you're a believer struggling with sin, actually, let's move back up. He wants you to think it's too late. He wants to cripple you with guilt. He doesn't want you to try. He doesn't want you to seek the Lord. He doesn't want you to uh, come back to the Lord. If you're a believer struggling with sin, repent, forsake it, and get back up. What does the Bible say? The righteous man, he falls seven times and gets back up. Gets back up. If you're not born again, trusting in Jesus for your salvation, come to him. He is a friend of sinners. He was ridiculed by the Jewish religious crowd by hanging out with those that were of ill repute. Those that, you don't go to that crowd. Um, there's some people that I have connected with on social media, Israelis, that are not people that we would want to hang out with. Not even probably want to be seen with. Uh, there's, you know, I'll just, I'll just leave it there. But these people, do they need the Lord? Did Jesus die for them? Yes. And so, um, Jesus is the antidote. There's no sin that you and I can commit today that he did not die for. And so, just a word of encouragement there. Whatever you're dealing with, or whatever you may have dealt with, Many of us can look at those things and relate to at least some point in our lives having thought that or felt that or gone through that type of a situation. Uh, feeling inadequate to do whatever it is. And yet God can do amazing things. Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. Now, as I mentioned before, in ancient times, it was a common practice when counting the number of people to number the men only. There are two different words here used for men. Okay? Verse number 10, make the men sit down. And then in the, in the second verse, um, actually, hang on a second. Yeah, in the second part of the verse, um, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. So the first word for men in John chapter 6 and verse 10 uh, it can describe people, okay, kind of like humankind. We have the same thing in Hebrew, anashim, 
is men, but it also can be used to just say people when it's a mixed group. And so the same thing here in Greek, okay, uh, it's related to the word anthropos, which is where we get anthropology, okay, the study of what? Not just the male gender, but humankind, okay? The first can describe people, the second is specifically men, okay? So Jesus told the people to sit down, and the men that were sitting down were about 5,000. According to archaeological data at this time, now listen to this, this is kind of neat. Nazareth had a population of 200. That's it, okay? Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, 200 people. This was a huge crowd. Jesus' following was no longer local, but regional. Okay, if Nazareth only had a crowd of 200 people for the village of Nazareth, and there's 5,000 men, not counting women and children, gathered here on this hillside in Galilee, they were from all over. They had come from all over the place to see Jesus. This is kind of interesting as well. John's memory of this event is fresh. Okay, these books weren't written immediately as they, as they occurred, but the Holy Spirit moved in their hearts and lives and breathed the very word of God. The Bible uses the word theonustos, meaning God breathed. Scripture is inspired of God. God breathed. God gave the words. But in the same way, he used the personalities and the memories of the men that were there, that were eyewitness to those things. And we see differences in how things were written because God allows that. But John's memory of this event is fresh, as he recalls. There was a lot of grass there, <laughs> you know? I mean, can you think of a, uh, something that happened in your life and you remember back and you can just remember what, you know, the field or whatever it was looked like, the place where that event occurred? This is vivid in John's mind. He remembered, boy, there was a lot of grass there and there was a lot of people. Um, just to remind us that John was there, eyewitness to the event. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, and what he probably says is similar to what we say at the Passover, the blessing over the matzah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, uh, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. Um, it's probably something very similar. He distributed, when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples, and the disciples to them that were set down and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. And so there's a process here. After Jesus blesses it, he starts handing it to his disciples and disciples to the people. This is when the miracle occurs. Okay, it just wasn't instantaneous. Boom, there's a million tons of fish and bread. The miracle occurred in the distribution, in the handing out, in the passing along from Jesus to the disciples to the people. If Jesus blesses something, Whatever it is, if Jesus blesses something, he continues to bless it, or his blessing continues to be upon it as it is worked out. If Jesus blessed his word, if he blessed, if God blessed the Jewish people, God doesn't revoke blessings. Those blessings are still there. And as Jesus gave thanks, okay, he blessed the bread and then he broke it, that bread and, and, and those fish, they continue to have his miraculous touch, his blessing on them as they're being distributed to 5,000 plus people on a huge grassy hillside. Um, the gospel, the gospel does no good on a shelf, in a closet, or even just 
in our hands. It must be given out. The Lord will work in just amazing, miraculous ways. How in the world can five loaves and two small sardines, okay, feed a multitude of people, thousands of people? How many of you guys go to Colonial? Okay, how many people do they have on a, is it like, a, a, I guess, how many on a service do they normally have? I know they have a couple services. Three, three or 4,000? Is that all the services combined? Okay, so if you can imagine that group plus more on like five rolls and two sardines, <laughs> okay? It's a miraculous thing. There's no way that that would have fed those people. And yet when Jesus blesses it and he distributes it and it comes from Jesus' hands to the disciples' hands with his blessing, miracles occur. Things that you and I could never do. We can't change a life, but the gospel can. And the gospel will not change somebody's life, you know, closed on a shelf. Or if we just simply, I'll put it this way, if we simply take it in and read it, we become like the Dead Sea, all input with no output, okay? We need to give it out. And in giving it out, God does amazing things that you would never imagine in working in people's lives, saving people's souls, changing their lives forever, for eternity. We can have an impact, not because of us, but because of what's in our hands that Jesus has blessed. It's more valuable than a lot of us, and myself included, uh, you know, take it for. It's a lot more precious than we sometimes hold it. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Now these baskets are not just like, you know, offering plate baskets or communion, you know, baskets. These are, these are huge, large containers. Now at the feeding of the 4,000, there's a similar thing that occurs, but the word for baskets is different. And it's a more smaller kind of handheld kind of basket. But these are large baskets spoken of here in John chapter 6. And there's 12 of them. And so Jesus doesn't just, you know, leave everything on a hillside. He doesn't let anything go to waste. I have here, 12 is, is significant. It also shows that Jesus doesn't waste anything. Now, Jesus came from Jerusalem. Did he not? And he spoke at the temple. And there was a lot of people that believed and a lot of people that were upset. And yet here, up in the Galilee region, there's another group of Jewish people. A vast multitude of the people of the land. Okay? Regular, everyday Israelis. And so, 12. Well, there's a number of things that 12 signifies. Well, how many disciples were there? 12. Also, how many tribes of Israel? 12. And so in some ways, and the scripture doesn't tell us this, but it's possible, symbolic, that this was sufficient. Jesus' provision is sufficient not only for the people up here, not only for the people in Judah, but all of Israel, all of Judah, all of the 12 tribes of Israel, the entire nation. He has provision and salvation and can provide for them. Also, it shows that Jesus doesn't waste anything, and that's something that we can take away from and, uh, you know, apply it how you ever might want to. But with this whole entire thing, this miracle, he also tells them to gather it up. Now, do you think that Jesus would have them gather up those 12 baskets and have them just sit and rot somewhere? I can't see him doing that. And so we aren't told what happens with those 12 baskets, but we can, we can 
speculate, as my preacher says, we can, <laughs> we can assume that, uh, that it was continually, continued to bless people even after this event was over by the leftovers, okay, the bread and the fish. Uh, verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth that prophet should, that should come into the world. This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. If there's any doubt that this crowd is majority Jewish, this verse takes away that doubt. This was a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. And also it's mentioned in John chapter 1, verse 21. These men were Jewish. Deuteronomy 18, by the way, let's go ahead and turn there. And by the way, if you guys have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to, uh, to raise your hand. And we'll discuss some things. I mentioned this, I think, last time I taught the Bible study, but by the way, Deuteronomy is Jesus' favorite um, book to quote from. Deuteronomy chapter number 18 and verse 15. Yeah, that's not working. Deuteronomy 18. In verse 15, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him shall ye hearken. And then go down to verse number 18. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, like unto Moses. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Verse number 19. It shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. By this time, first century, that prophet had not come. It was not Joshua, son of Nun. It was not Isaiah, Jeremiah. It was not Elijah. It was not any of those. They were still looking for that prophet. When John came, John the Baptist, in John chapter 1, they asked him, are you that prophet? And that prophet specifically is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And these men here, who were Jewish, who were well aware of that prophecy, said, this is for sure that prophet that Moses spoke of. These men were Jewish. Okay, before we get into our second point, Jesus walking on the water, is there any questions, comments, discussion? Speak now or forever hold your peace. I don't know if Mark and Cheryl are hearing those same words right now. <laughs> okay, so, verse 15 of John chapter 6. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again to a mountain himself alone. Now, what's interesting about these two different groups of people, the Judean Jews, okay, the Jewish religious authorities, and on the contrary side, we see the people of the land, the secular Israelites, if you may, in the north of Israel. And so both of them are kind of two extremes. The religious crowd, we don't want to accept your authority, we don't believe you're the Messiah, and they fall on that extreme. 
These people here, they get all excited. They say, this is of a truth, that prophet. And Jesus perceived that they were going to try and take him by force to make him their king. Okay, they were missing some things as well. And as we go further in John chapter 6, we'll see that these people, they, they tend to miss some other things too. And so in both groups, the Judean, Judean rulership and the people of the land, there are those that truly believe. And there are those that are skeptic. And there are those that are kind of, like Judas maybe was, completely misunderstanding the purpose for which Jesus came. Not to deliver them from Rome, but to deliver them from their sin. Okay. Because he perceived that they wanted to do this, to take him by force, to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself, alone. When even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Now, look at that little, that little map there. This is the same map that I had from John chapter 2. That's why there's a little marker on Cana. The Sea of Galilee there, and you only see, you know, two-thirds of it, but that's okay. The parts that we're focusing on are there in the picture. So when Jesus and his disciples, when they're coming from Jerusalem, because remember, previous chapter, they were down there. They were at the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. They came up from Jerusalem to Galilee. Where do you suppose on the Sea of Galilee, coming up from Jerusalem, coming north out of Jerusalem, where do you think they would end up at? Well, they would end up at the the lowest part of the Sea of Galilee, most likely. Okay? Even, even probably below Tiberias. Um, they were going to be probably near Tiberias, but they were probably right at the part where, see the River Jordan there, that goes from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south? They were probably somewhere near that point, at the very southern point of the Sea of Galilee, most likely. And as we read these continuing verses, we'll kind of see a little bit more of the structure geographically of where they are. And by the way, the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's kind of deep, okay, below sea level. Uh, I think I have a quote here. Uh, let's see here. I think it's about... Yeah, do I have it written down as far as how deep it is? Okay, I think <coughs> I had that note somewhere here, but I think I, I think I missed it. Anyway, um, I think the note that I had said about 200 meters, so that makes it about 600 feet. 600 feet. Okay, so it's 600 feet below sea level. Okay, and there's mountains around it. It's kind of like a bowl. Okay, which I hear. The state of Washington is kind of like that. I don't know. Anyway, so there's this, there's this, you know, bowl where the Sea of Galilee rests, and it goes deep into that sea. So there's mountains surrounding, or hills, whatever you may want to say. It's many times the same word is used in Hebrew for mountain or hill, but these mountains surrounding the Sea of Galilee, like a bowl, okay? And Jesus is in one of these mountains. His disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went, o went over the sea toward Capernaum. Now it was dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. 
So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, okay, so they were about twenty-five or thirty furlongs into the Sea of Galilee. They see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh into the ship, and they were afraid. They were scared. Now, let's look at some of these things here. Thirty furlongs, okay, how far they went into the Sea of Galilee at this point, at night, and the wind becomes boisterous, is about three and a half miles. So they were about three and a half miles from the shore in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Just to give you some perspective, oh, and by the way, storms are common on the Sea of Galilee, and that has to do with the fact of its, its depth, sea level-wise, and the fact that it's kind of surrounded by a bowl. I'm not a meteorologist, nor do I pretend to be, even though I got a green screen behind me here. But uh, anyway, it causes a lot of storms. There was a story of one man who decided he was going to go fishing on the Sea of Galilee. He's not normally a fisherman. And he didn't really know what the Sea of Galilee can be like as far as storms just arising out of nowhere instantly, violent storms, even though it's just a little lake. And so this man, he went out into the Sea of Galilee and he got stuck. And he was fearing for his life. He called the Israeli rescue squad and they came and rescued him by air. That's how bad it was. They rescued him with a helicopter in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> and he said the next time he make sure that he doubly checks the weather before he goes fishing. But that can happen. That's a modern day occurrence. Okay, They didn't have helicopters in Jesus' day to air flight rescue people. It was a scary thing when that happened. So just to give you some perspective today, the pear-shaped lake is about 23 kilometers, 14 miles long from north to south. And you have both points there. Okay, The, the southernmost point and the northernmost point are about 14 miles apart. So when it says they went into the Sea of Galilee three and a half miles at this point, going toward Capernaum, okay, they were in the sea. Yes? Most likely they said, Jesus is probably there. Okay, because Jesus ended up making his, his ministry headquarters, so to speak, uh, Capernaum. Many events occurred in, in Capernaum, and as far as we understand it, many times he lodged with Peter's mother-in-law or Peter's Peter's house that had the family dwelling, generations of Peter's family living there in Capernaum. So they probably said, he's probably at Peter's house, <laughs> or probably in Capernaum. Yes. No, no, I think they just wanted to find Jesus, because it says that he himself departed into a mountain alone, okay? All of the multitude, they were, he perceived that they wanted to take him by force, to kidnap him and make him king. And so that was not in Jesus' plan, nor was it in the will of the Father. And so he said, I'm going to go to a mountain alone. And he went. And the disciples, you can just imagine, where'd Jesus go? I don't know. And they're trying to figure it out. And they said, let's just, let's head over to Capernaum. He's probably over there. Okay. Meanwhile, a storm arises. The wind blows and they start getting scared. Okay. Three and a half miles into the 14 mile length of the Sea of Galilee. Okay. They're headed towards Capernaum which is almost at the northernmost point, okay? All right, so just to give you some, some perspective, okay, 14 miles long from north to south with a maximum width of 8 miles in the north, covering roughly 166. And this guy that wrote this, he's an Israeli, so he goes by kilometers, not miles. Uh, 64 square miles. That's how big the lake is, the Sea of Galilee. The lake is not large, but is nevertheless sizable. 
we are told that the boat with the disciples had just passed the three to four mile mark, which is roughly a quarter of the entire distance. It was night, and the lights of the coastal cities were still glimmering in the distance. How many of you have seen that? We go on the Sea of Galilee at night. We did it once. It's pretty amazing. Um, they were not halogen bulbs back then, um, but they were lamps, fire-lit lamps or oil lamps. Um, okay. All of a sudden, they saw a man walking on the water towards them. Fear was but a natural reaction to this unnatural event. And the book is called The, Go the Jewish Gospel of John. Then in verse 20 and 21, But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Those are amazingly comforting words. Because who is in our hearts, if we are believers, if we have trusted Jesus as our Savior? The Holy Spirit of God, who is also known as the Spirit of Christ. Because the three are one, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so, whatever you're going through, if you think, Boy, that must have been, I mean, I know, I know it was a scary time, but that must have been comforting to the disciples when Jesus said, don't worry, it's me. Don't be scared, it's me. I'm here. Um, for us, whatever we might be going through, if it's, you know, sitting in the dentist chair for an hour and a half, <laughs> Jesus is with me, and I'm thankful for that. Don't, don't worry, don't be afraid, <laughs> you know. Um, I had a lot of dental work done recently, and, and so did my wife, but... Uh, but the Lord got us through it, uh, mostly. I'm still experiencing a little bit that I've got to go back for. So I'm still depending on Jesus' presence to give me grace and help and to uh, alleviate my, my burden of fear. It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Now, something that's interesting about this verse, there's a couple of interesting things. Then they willingly received him, gives us the impression that when they, at first sight, they were like, get out of here. <laughs> you know, they didn't want this person, this thing that they saw walking on the water, coming to them on the sea, uh, that they were, you know, I don't want you, any, we're near our boat, you know, kind of freaking out. But once they realized it was him, they willingly took him in. <laughs> they willingly took him into the boat. Um, and then it says, and this is something that we could just, glance over and completely miss a miracle. Then they willingly received him into the ship and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. How far out into the sea were they? And how far were they from Capernaum? Pretty, pretty far. Yeah, another 10 miles or so, 10, 11 miles to Capernaum. There was no time to think when this was happening. Again, this is a quote from the Jewish Gospel of John. There was no time to think when this was happening. And a very curious thing occurred. Although the distance was still sizable, approximately 10 miles, to reach Capernaum, Capernaum, village of Nahum, the boat immediately and safely touched the stony beach. The Bible says immediately the ship was at the land as soon as Jesus came in. This may sound like an unconnected to anything incident, but we will be at a theological fault if we do not recognize that the distance and time are also, as is all creation, under the sole lordship of God himself. He alone lives outside of time and outside of distance, and as such, he is eternal and omnipresent. Therefore, this curious occurrence is actually very important because it shows, it shows that when the God-man, Jesus, who was 100% God and 100% man, and that's possible only with him, 
Okay, you can't have, you know, unless there's something that's like 200% of your daily value of vitamin C. <laughs> but, you know, 100% plus 100% usually doesn't work. But with Jesus, it does. As in the boat with the disciples, the boat is able to disappear from one place on the map and reappear in another in an instant. Now, we find out very uh, shortly here that on the next day, we find out where the disciples and Jesus went to, where their boat touched the land and it's Capernaum. They didn't just go back to the southern point. They didn't go back to Tiberias. But when the boat immediately touched the land, whether they went, where they were going, they were headed towards Capernaum. And so from that three and a half mile point in the Sea of Galilee, once they received Jesus into the boat, it's like, wow, we're here. Don't you wish that could happen on a long journey? long drive or plane ride, you know. Um, anyway. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I would... I, I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they believe in if if they believe in angels, if they believe in the supernatural, which, by the way, that's a difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees, there's no supernatural, there's no heaven, there's no angels, there's no spirit. Okay, and so um, in our in, in our day and age, you know, with Halloween and everything else, we kind of view the word spirit as you know like a ghoul or something. I don't know what they thought they saw, but they nevertheless were afraid. Um, and they would be of those that believed that there was a realm that we cannot see, whether demon or angelic or whatever it may be. Uh, so yeah, they were, they were quaking in their boots, thinking that some kind of, you know, entity, whether you want to use the, the term ghost or not, um, yeah, they were they were scared. <laughs> they thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think I think I would be too. I think I would be too. Absolutely. Okay. So Jesus teaches on the bread of life, and I think I don't know. I don't know if we'll get through the, all this or not. I wanted to get at least through verse 40. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea, what's the other side of the sea from Capernaum? Well, it's the southernmost point, okay, where that miracle occurred of the feeding of the multitude. They're still there. The next morning, where'd Jesus go? They're trying to figure it out. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save the one whereinto the disciples were entered, that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. So they, I guess they realized that Jesus didn't, he didn't stick around. And they also realized that the disciples' boat was there, and now it's gone. But they knew that Jesus left separately. So they're trying to figure out what happened. The disciples are gone. Jesus went into a mountain. They wouldn't have left without Jesus, would they? And they're trying to figure that out. Um, okay, Howbeit, there came other boats from Tiberias. Now, look back at your map if you have that on the same 
sheet there or not. On mine it's a little bit different. So you see where the southernmost point is, you see where Tiberius is, and you see where Capernaum is. Okay. So aside from the single boat that was there, the boat that belonged to the disciples that was now gone, there was other boats that were on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know if they were fishing boats, if they were transporting people, or what they were doing, but they were boats from Tiberias. And they had to have been pretty sizable, or at least enough of them, to bring a good amount of people from one point to another. So it says, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, most likely the southernmost point on the lake. And so we have Tiberias, boats coming from Tiberias, okay, which would have been one of the bigger towns or villages surrounding the Sea of Galilee, and they come to where they ate bread at the southernmost point, most likely, of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they came nigh unto the place where they did eat bread after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. Now it doesn't tell us exactly, but we can kind of assume that these boats from Tiberias, okay, these Tiberian boats, whether they were shipping or, you know, hauling or fishing, whatever they were, they said, hey, let's catch some of those boats and go over to Capernaum. That's probably where Jesus is. And so they wonder where he was. They wanted to see him. Uh, some of them were very excited. Some of them were very zealous. Some of them were maybe skeptic, but hey, they got a free meal the other day. And that's touching their heart, okay? And so they wanted to see him. They board probably these, these Tiberian boats that are mentioned that lodged at the place where they ate from, the southernmost point, And they were bound for Capernaum. They came to Capernaum. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, now usually when we think, I don't know, I don't know if you think this way, but when I think of this side of the sea and then the other side of the sea, I tend to think right to left, left to right, east to west. But here when it's talking about the other side of the sea, going to Capernaum, to the other side of the sea, from where they were on the first side of the sea, it's talking about south to north. So they come over, when they had found him on the other side of the sea, verse 25, they said unto him, Rabbi, whence camest thou hither? Now, again, Rabbi is a Jewish term, it's a Hebrew term, or Aramaic, depending on what language they're speaking. But it's a Jewish term, these people were Jewish. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but, you but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Now that's, that's, not, a, that's not a rebuke right there. Okay, that's just a statement of, of fact. Now it's kind of funny, they ask him, Whence camest thou, or when camest thou hither? When did you, when did you get here? When did you come here? <laughs> you know, it's just kind of funny there, you know, Master, Rabbi, when did, you, when did you come here? And then Jesus responds, he doesn't really even answer their question. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw all those miracles, but because you ate of the bread and you were filled. This is amazing. To put in the context of here and now, Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. He can do the impossible and amazing things. He died on the cross and rose again for our sin. But the most amazing thing to us, okay, most amazing thing, qualify that to us is that he can save us. He can work in our lives. He can forgive us 
personally and individually. He can give us new life and change us forever. He can take us to heaven. He can fill you. He can give you peace. And so just as he's talking to this multitude here, you didn't seek after me because you saw all those miracles. And again, this is not a rebuke. You seek me because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And so there's many in this world that look at God as just a myth. It's just a story. He's just, a, you know, words on a page. And Jesus is a historical figure. The amazing thing is that 2,000 years later, he can change lives. He's not separate from humankind in the sense that those miracles, it's like watching a TV show, you know. I can watch some movie or some TV show and see some actors and some, you know, plot played out on a screen and it's just, it's kind of nothing. I'm kind of separate from it. Jesus says you didn't come because you saw the miracles, but because you yourself were affected by what I did for you. And that's not just according to this, this instance or limited to this instance, but even 2,000 years later, you and I, we can be saved by what he did for us on the cross. We can have fellowship with him because he's a living savior. And so all of these different things, if we don't avail ourselves of, just like the gospel does nothing sitting on a shelf, it has power when it's given out. It has power because Jesus has blessed it. In the same way, what Jesus did in dying for us on the cross, okay, it's effective or it's, it's sufficient for all, but effective only to those that would trust in him, only those that would believe. And so Jesus could say along the same lines of what he's saying here, the miracles didn't do anything for you. You watched them and saw them as kind of, you know, somebody on the outside looking in. But now you have eaten of the bread. You have been blessed by a miracle that I performed and you're still full because of what I did yesterday. That's why you're seeking after me. And we should seek him. Because of the miracles that he did, yes. Because of everything that he did. But because what he did affects us. Because what he did was for me and for you. And he is still, the Bible says, our mediator. He intercedes for us with the Father right now. And so um, take that to heart. There's a hymn. It says, I am so glad that our Father in heaven tells of his love in the book he has given. Wonderful things in the Bible I see. This is the dearest that Jesus loves me. And so what Jesus is saying, you ate of the loaves. You experienced what I can give you in a small, symbolic kind of manner. What we see he continues here is to teach that he is the bread of life. Then he says in verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Now here Jesus isn't talking about there's some kind of magical bread or some kind of magical food or some kind of fountain of youth that you can eat and thereby be eternally saved. It's completely uh, symbolic of who Jesus is. He is the bread of life. He is the word of God. He is the salvation of Israel and all the other nations of the entire world. Now back in this time, it was common in Jesus' day for people to work not necessarily for wages, not necessarily for that Roman denarii, okay, but to work for something perishable, like food 
you know, I'll work for food kind of thing, and I'll work for housing, being able to live here, and, and different stuff. And Jesus says, don't labor for that which is going to disappear after you eat it. Labor for that which is eternal. And when he's saying labor, he's not emphasizing work for your salvation, but he's saying seek, seek that which is eternal. And that which is eternal is not necessarily what you ate in that grass uh, over there yesterday, but what is eternal is what I am telling you. My words are spirit and they are truth, he says a little bit later in this chapter. And so it's kind of a concept that they could understand. Don't work for that which is going to disappear. You know, don't spend all of your time working and working and working just so you can eat and then it's gone. But work for what's eternal. Seek what's eternal. Then said they unto them, what shall we do? That we, we might work the works of God. And you can kind of see here, the gears are turning, but they're kind of missing a couple of cogs. You know, they're not entirely connecting with what Jesus is trying to communicate to them. What should we do to work the works of God? Now listen to this. Jesus answered, said unto them, this is the work of God. He's about to tell them exactly what he desires for them to do. Exactly. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Jesus is saying you want to work the works of God? You want to have that eternal life? It doesn't come through anything that you can do but it comes through the sole thing that I'm asking of you, and that is to believe. Believe in him whom the Father hath sent. Now, who is Jesus talking to? What kind of people are these? Jewish people. Believe on him that the God of Israel has sent. Okay, there's a connection that he's trying to make there with these Jewish people. They're missing the point completely. What is the one thing that Jesus asks of you? What is the one thing that God wants this world to do? Believe on Jesus, trust him. And if we're doing anything else, we're missing the point. And they said, therefore, unto him, and this, this here shows us also their skeptic nature, the fact that they're not entirely connecting with what Jesus is trying to say. He talks about um, the Son of Man will give you uh, eternal life. The Son of Man will give you that which um, lasts forever. And they say, what should we do that we work the works of God? And then he tells them, believe. And then, he, and then they say, what's a sign that you can show us that you're, you know, this guy? <laughs> and so they're still not getting it. They fall into the same trap that the Judean Jewish people were asking for. What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou, what dost thou work? Now, before we get into these next two verses... What happened less than 24 hours previous to this? An amazing miracle that they not only saw with their eyes, but they got to eat the fruit of that miracle, okay? What sign do you show us that, uh, that we may see and believe you? Uh, what dost thou work? And then they say this, Our fathers, and again, these are Jewish people, okay? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you, giveth you the true bread from heaven. Now, what he's communicating to them, to he, them here, they were aware, and they said that this is that prophet, and our fathers did eat manna. They're constantly referencing Moses. What did we talk about in John chapter 5 when the Jewish people were talking about how Jesus had broken the Sabbath and all these other things, Jesus ends up bringing up what biblical character? Moses. 
And he says, if you would have believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. Here again, on the other side of Israel, the northern side, Moses is brought up. Moses is contrasted and compared with Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, Moses gave the people the Torah. Okay? And through Moses, although the manna was not from Moses, the people were fed. Okay? Jesus, from a mountainside, feeds the people and teaches the people the true Torah. Okay? He teaches them the interpretation of the Torah that is correct, and he teaches them his teachings as well. And so Moses gave us manna, and Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. What he's basically saying is you don't understand the Torah. Did that bread come from Moses? Did Moses say, here, here's some manna. It came from God. And so Jesus says, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. The bread didn't come from Moses, but from Moses' God. And Jesus is saying the true bread from heaven, that is this, the, the, the bread in, 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 the, in the Torah, the manna that was given was a symbol of me. I am the true bread. I am the bread of life. And I am given to you, Jewish people, from the God of Israel, who is my Father. Verse 33, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And so Jesus brings it to a, to a focal point there, connecting the bread, the manna that they did eat in the wilderness to the ultimate fulfillment of Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Messiah, being the bread of life sent from the Father that gives life to the world. The manna from heaven was simply a picture of the true sustenance that comes from God, which is ultimately in the Lord Jesus, in the Messiah. Then said they unto him, well, we're getting kind of close here. Maybe we'll finish this page. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. <laughs> Lord, always give us this bread. We want this bread all the time. Give it to us now, but forever. Keep doing it <laughs> continually. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now, this is a, this is a verse here that I want to share with you from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. And this has to do with the manna that God gave in the wilderness to the people of Israel. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know. Why? Why did God give them manna in the wilderness? That he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Deuteronomy 8.3 Jesus quoted this very verse to Satan in Matthew chapter 4, when he was tempted in the wilderness. Satan says, If you're truly the Son of God, command these stones that they be made bread. And Jesus responded, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, who is Jesus? He is God. 
And in John, it says, the word was with God and the word was God and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He is the bread of life. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the manna that was given in, in, in the wilderness. Why was that manna given? So that man may know that he does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. True Israelites, and again, Jesus is talking to the Jewish people, as he did in all of these other chapters in the book of John, whether it's the J Jewish religious crowd and the Pharisaical leadership there in Judea, or the people of the land, the everyday Israelite in the north of Israel in the Galilee area. What he's saying to them is the true worshiper, the true Israelite, the one that truly worships the God of Israel, will live by Jesus himself. I am the fulfillment of this. If you're going to live by the word of God, if you're going to have your sustenance by the bread that comes down from heaven, that's not manna in the wilderness. And that's not solely this book, but it is ultimately typified and fulfilled in me. I am the word of God. I am the bread of life. And what he says in this verse here where he says, uh, he, that, he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Something very similar that he says to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Let's look and see what, real quick, in verse 36, their response. Or Jesus, what Jesus says here about their response. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. At this point, Jesus knows their hearts, Okay? From the point that he is telling them up at the top that this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. You need to believe. And then he tells them, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he tells them, uh, the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven. And then he says, he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And yet they're still kind of not grasping it. And you can sense that Jesus is, uh, you know, his heart is broken. His heart was broken over Jerusalem and the Jewish people rejecting him there. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me. You've seen me. You've seen what I've done. You've eaten of the bread and you believe not. These people that he's talking to, yeah, they're following him, but they are not believers. Compare this to the Samaritan woman's response in John chapter 4. Turn back just a couple pages to John 4.13. John 4, verse number 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, the woman of Samaria, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, that is like almost exactly parallel in a lot of ways to what Jesus tells the people here in John chapter 6. And yet there is an entirely, entirely different response. Flip over to verse 39 of John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed of his own word. 
and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of this, thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Okay, they had that teaching in their Torah as well. And so, whether Jew or Gentile, or somewhere in between as far as people are concerned, there can be those that receive what Jesus teaches. There can be those that kind of, okay, I'll listen to it. There's a whole lot of people in the secular world that study, they study the teachings of Jesus, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. They study it, and yet they're just removed. They don't accept it. They don't trash it. They just, eh, it's there. It's a historical document that may or may not have been altered. They don't have belief in God's ability to keep his word. Um, whatever side you may be in, and even as a Christian, sometimes we can find ourselves falling into the trap of, okay, what does Jesus tell you know, the crowds today? And we don't apply it to our own lives. We keep it separate. The Samaritan woman and the, and the people of Samaria and Nicodemus, okay, a Pharisee, and many Pharisees in, in, in Jerusalem as well. And there's times where in the book of Acts we read many of the priests believed. And yet there's also those, on the same token, there's those that don't believe. We see a difference there. He said, you have seen me, verse 36 of John 6, and you believe not. Compare those two reactions. It's amazing to see those things. Then in verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now, we're going to see some things here in the next couple of verses. I think my pages are a little bit different than yours as far as how many pages I have, but I think we're almost to the last page, right? Almost to the last page. Um, what I would like to talk about, starting in verse 37 through verse 45, there's some, some heavy things, some deep things, and I don't want to at all, with two minutes left on the clock, <laughs> um, shortchange those things. And so I think what we'll do is we'll stop here. I'm not teaching next week, but the next two weeks after that, two weeks in a row, I'm teaching. So we'll see if maybe we can get to John chapter 8. I don't know. Oh, well, probably not. There's like another 30-something <laughs> verses in John chapter 6, and we haven't even gotten to verse 37 yet. Um, is there any questions, comments, or discussion on what we've gone over so far? And it'll be really interesting in a couple of weeks when we go into the last part of, well, verse 37 through 45 anyway. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that it can be applied that way, but it's not directly. I mean, all that we have from that passage is Jesus said, gather everything up so that nothing is wasted or nothing is left. We aren't told what he did with it, but we know that he gathered it up and that statement is made that so nothing is wasted, so nothing is, is, is lost of what was given out. Um, so we can assume, we can speculate by that passage that um, it was put to good use, but we can't say that dogmatically as said in the scripture, but we can, we can almost read between the lines and see that. Yeah. Well, if I'm talking to my grandkids, can I say, eat everything on your plate because the Lord says it. <laughs> or, or save it for leftovers, put it in the freezer. Yeah. Right. That's the, uh, 
That's the gospel truth right there. Yeah, um, no, um, I, think it's a, I think it's a good principle, and we can secondarily apply that principle um, to this passage, although we can't dogmatically say, you know, Jesus said, eat every single last corn kernel on your plate in John chapter 6. Uh, but that's definitely a principle that we, that we see as well. Being, good, being a good steward, you know. If we end up taking home a rotisserie chicken from Walmart, eating off a chicken leg and then throwing the whole thing, you know, that's not being a good steward of what God's provided you, you know. And that's on a very, very small scale. Those things are like four ninety nine or something like that. So, but, uh, but nevertheless, he that is faithful in, in, in a little, right? A silly rotisserie chicken, you know, next time God will make you faithful over a, I don't know, a steak. Yeah, there you go. A side of beef, so, or something. Any other comments or questions before we close? Yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things, yeah, yeah. And one of the interesting things that I'm learning with the book of John is looking at, looking at it as a bigger picture. There are so many things that are brought up in one chapter that are brought up again in a chapter later or a couple of chapters later or things that are repeated continually throughout every chapter. And seeing the overarching theme of Jesus' authority. Um, and I'm learning to look at the book of John just not as, okay, this is John chapter 3, but seeing it as, look back at John chapter 1. Jesus is the word. You know, look back in John chapter 2 and the miracles that he did in, 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 in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. We see those same miracles being referenced here when Jesus said, you've seen the miracles. Um, and Nicodemus saw those miracles in John chapter 3 and they all linked together and then the Samaritan woman, like you said, no miracles being done and yet she believes other than the fact of telling her you have no husband and you've had five previously. Um, but, you know, the whole city just believes in Jesus on his word. And that is a very big contrast. And these people were all, the Samaritans and those that are, are, are spoken of in, in John chapter number five, the, the Judean Jews and the Galilean Jews, they're all Jewish. And so that kind of also brings out an interesting point about the 12 baskets, you know, Jesus is sufficient for the whole of Israel. And in a lot of, a lot of this, even though it's a, a, a book written for a worldwide audience, the subject of the book of John, or let's say the, in, the immediate audience of the book of John, the immediate people that are involved in the book of John are almost entirely Jewish people. So it's a very Jewish context, very Jewish book, dealing with Jewish people, north, south, east, west, everywhere, all of the people of Israel in different ways. Some believe, some don't. Some trust him as Messiah. Some are his disciples. Some say, we found the Messiah. Some say, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Um, and, uh, and yet it's written for a worldwide audience. So here in America in 2018, we can look at it. Yeah. Yeah, no prophet is without honor, except in his own country. Absolutely. Okay, well, I guess we got some goodies. I think we do. If not, we'll just all have to have some coffee. <laughs> and uh, I'll go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Okay. I thank you, Lord, once again uh, for the, the time that you give us. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. 
These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.